Okay. <laughs> I know it. I can't look down on you. <laughs> All right. I'm sure you have noted that uh, this is our 10th and final lesson in this series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, you're welcome to come next week. I'm sure there'll be some function. <laughs> and you can just come right in and act like you belong, you know. You, but uh, no, we won't be here next week. And uh, we will be starting another series in February. And we'll be letting you know on the internet, or, or you can email me, or I can email you. We will let you know one way or another uh, when the exact dates are and what have you, and, and what this subject matter is. <laughs> uh, I will be praying about what the subject matter is, because I can promise you, I, I have no idea. Um, today's lesson can be found in Luke 24, the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, and it's that all-important subject, all-important to Christians, uh, of the resurrection. And I'm sure you've, I don't know if you've thought about, you know, how important the resurrection is. Uh, uh, any minister of any church you go can tell you that it's the, the foundation, it's the basis of the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the importance of the resurrection, he said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. So that sounds like it's pretty important then, right? we got to have it. Uh, what it is, the resurrection was a lot of things, but it was the divine vindication of Christ's atoning work on the cross. It was God saying, it is finished, it is accomplished, and now you have a risen Savior uh, who is going to wait for you also to be risen. Because Christ is risen, we also can be assured that we will rise from the dead as well. So it guaranteed eternal life. And in today's uh, story, you'll see, uh, amazingly enough, uh, and, and we've been following this for 10 weeks now, how clueless the disciples were, and you'll see uh, they, they continue to be clueless. They, they can't figure out what's going on. They're looking for something else besides the resurrection. They're not expecting it at all. And I think in Luke's gospel, that's the clearest of all four gospels. If, if you look between the lines in the other three gospels, you can see that as well. But in Luke's gospel, you can see that all the disciples uh, are clueless. None of them know uh, that it's going to happen. No one is expecting it. They've all, they're actually looking for something else. They're actually looking for something else, which is the kingdom. They think that all of their teachers have been telling them their whole life, and they're expecting that the, the Messiah would come and immediately set up the kingdom, which would be primarily a nationalistic thing. So they're looking for the restoration of Israel. Israel has been under Gentile domination during the time of Christ. It's been under Gentile domination for over 600 years. So you can imagine how important the Messiah was from a nationalistic standpoint. They were looking for him to come, run the Romans out of there, set up the kingdom of Israel, and restore their peace and their prosperity and their good fortune. And so that's what they were expecting, and they certainly were not expecting their Messiah to die. And so to all the people, whether it was his own disciples or to the religious leaders or whoever, the idea, the concept of a dead Messiah just doesn't work. They don't get that at all, and you can, you can see why that would be perplexing to them. Okay? So... Uh, there are many burial sites. You know, as you go different places, you see Grant's tomb and where Lincoln's buried in Washington, all these different uh, places where all these great men are buried. And people go there, you know, to see the, the grave of and the person there. The amazing thing about uh, Jesus' tomb is just the opposite. 
It's empty. <laughs> we go to see where all these other people are buried, but the uniqueness of Christ's tomb is that there's nobody there. It's completely empty. Uh, you know, on, in Washington, D.C., a little known fact, uh, there's an inscription in the dome of our capital in D.C., and it says, one far-off event toward which the whole creation moves. The whole creation is waiting for this resurrection of the Christ, the Son of God, and, and what it, the impact on us and what it means to us. And of course, for all those who are critics who don't believe, naturally it's very important for them to explain away the resurrection. And so, uh, you know, you, you may have seen a couple of years ago some, somebody in looking through some of the ancient tombs that they were excavating, they found one of those ostuary boxes that has bones in it, and it has an, an inscription on it that said, Jesus, or actually in Hebrew it's Joshua, which was a very common name. And so it said Joshua on it, so they're saying, ha, finally, we found Jesus' remains. This is where he was buried. You know, we, we can prove now that he was not raised from the dead. And, and one comic said, yeah, in fact, they looked at the wrist bone of, you know, of the bones in the box, the wrist bone, and there was one of those bracelets that said WWID. <laughs> what would I do? <laughs> so they knew it was him. Actually, it's, it's now been proven that that wasn't him. It wasn't even anywhere near the time period it could have possibly been him. And they can look all they want, but they're never going to find the body because it's in heaven at the right hand of God. So what do they do with the empty tomb? Nobody denies the empty tomb. Everybody agrees that the tomb was empty. Remember the Jewish leaders in Matthew's account said, okay, we got to... We've got to come up with something because you can go over there and that, there's nobody in that tomb where we buried him. And the soldiers all came back and told them what happened. So they bribed the soldiers to tell them that the, uh, his disciples came by and stole the body. You know? But you'll see in today's lesson that that couldn't possibly have been what happened because they were not expecting it. They were not looking for it. And they were incredibly sad, moping around, very uh, uh, down about what had happened, couldn't figure it out. But historically, there's four theories that have been uh, thrown out there about why the tomb was empty. The first one is called the swoon theory. Isn't that great? They said Jesus was there. He didn't really die, though. He just fainted. He swooned, right? <laughs> and so he was only unconscious for a while, and then they put him in the grave, and he woke up in there and went whole, and he, and he somehow made his way out. <laughs> they failed to think or consider that they not only crucified him, but they stuck a, a spear through his body and all his bodily fluids came out. And then, so they pierced his side with a spear. And then he was pronounced dead by a, a medical attendant and the Roman soldiers and the people who prepared his body. And they wrapped him up with 100 pounds, again, Matthew's account, 100 pounds of wrappings and aloes and, and what have you. And then they put him in the tomb and rolled this huge stone over it and sealed it and guarded it. So they would have you believe that after <laughs> being crucified and run through with a spear, all his body flus come out, wrapped in the deal, stuck in the tomb, sealed soldiers. Somehow Jesus unwrapped himself came to, and without any blood in his body, got up, somehow moved the stone, fought off the soldiers, and emerged. Yeah, right. The second one was the wrong tomb. Uh, well, we'll see in today's lesson. In fact, you can look at it right now in Luke 23, verse 55. The, on the, at the crucifixion on Friday, the women who had come with him out of Galilee, so this large group of women, all the Marys and all them, uh, went and followed them to the tomb where they buried him, and they, they marked it as the tomb where he was buried because they planned on coming back Sunday. They didn't have time because the Sabbath 
comes at 6 p.m. So they said, we'll come back Sunday. But they went and watched and saw exactly where he's buried. And of course, what were all those soldiers doing there if that wasn't the tomb? And of course, later, uh, his disciples went to the exact same tomb. The Jewish leaders went to the exact same tomb. So uh, clearly, it couldn't have been the wrong tomb. Uh, the disciples stole his body would be the third theory. Uh, well, you know, that doesn't explain uh, why or how they got through all those soldiers, how they moved the stone, broke the seal, uh, all that stuff. And of course, if they did that, then they would know that it was a lie. How would that many people, you know how many hundreds of people would have had to been in on that lie to make that happen? And of course, you know how that works. There's no way a lie can stand with that many people, that many loose ends to it. Uh, there's no way. And then my personal favorite, uh, put forth by a uh, 19th century rationalist that was trying to come up with an explanation. I love his name. His name was Kersap. Kersap, in fact, was a sap. <laughs> and he came up with the hallucination theory that they just wanted him to be alive, and so they hallucinated that they saw him. Uh, amazingly enough, uh, all of them together that saw him uh, over a 40-day period, that ate with him, that listened to him teach, and even when he was in the Galilee, he appeared to up to 500 people, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and, and all 12 of the disciples and all the Marys. Uh, so all of them hallucinated multiple times? I don't think so. Uh, but it just points out how important it is to unbelievers to disprove resurrection and disprove the empty tomb. So look at the text with me. As we just saw at the end of chapter 23, uh, all the women that followed him, he had a, had a, a real large contingent of women. And by the way, that just points out that you know most people think, and in all the movies you see, there's only you know the 12 of them the 12 disciples following him around. But if you put together all the accounts and all the Gospels and all the different stories you can see, he probably had an entourage more like about 100 people following him because he had a whole bunch of ladies. He had a whole bunch of supporters. Uh, you can see in Acts 1 when they decide that they're going to elect, so to speak, uh, a new apostle since Judas Iscariot is gone. They said, we need another one to make up the 12. And so what do they do? They bring all the people that have been following him uh, in his entourage for, from the very beginning. He says all those who, came, who were there from the very beginning, and, and then they elected one out of that group. So there was a, there was a large contingent, you know, up to maybe 100 people that followed him uh, throughout his ministry. The 12 are just his inner circle, uh, and we know them because... Uh, they were so involved in, in the work, and Jesus personally chose them to be his main disciples, okay? So uh, they went and saw where the tomb was, and they planned on coming back. In verse 56, they returned and, and prepared spices and perfumes because they were going to bring them back, uh, not on the Sabbath, which was Saturday, but the very next day, okay? So in chapter 24... On the first day of the week, so it, that identifies that as Sunday. And Sunday, you may have thought, or maybe you didn't, but you should have. You may have wondered how uh, the worship services got moved. You know, so all through uh, Judaism, all from the time of Moses until the time of Christ, the services were always on the Sabbath, you know, which is Saturday. So how did the church end up on Sunday? Well, they decided that they would uh, worship, get together on Sundays and worship on the day of his resurrection. So they decided that was the seminal event of Christianity, of, of Christ that marked them apart, was the resurrection and that they should get together and, and celebrate the resurrection on Sunday the day, the first day of the week that Jesus was uh, raised. The Jew, you know, all the, the early church, the first church, it was in Jerusalem, and they were all Jewish. And they actually met 
on the Sabbath, and then also and they, they did all the usual Sabbath stuff with, with the uh, Jews there in Jerusalem, but they also then would meet on Sundays as well. And then by the time at the end of the first century, uh, the church is primarily Gentile uh, and, and exists in Asia Minor and Greece and Rome and all these different places. And they um, con continue to worship on Sunday. And because the Jewish Sabbath didn't mean anything to them, eventually uh, it just ended up being only on Sunday. Okay? So they come back on the first day of the week at early dawn. So as the sun comes up, they came to the tomb. And they had been, and you can see it in the other Gospels account, they've been discussing, how are we going to get that stone unrolled? It's too heavy for even all of us to move it. Maybe we can get the soldiers to help us. They, they come, and to their surprise, the stone's already moved. Matthew's account says there was an earthquake and the angels moved it, so it was a supernatural event. And it wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that they could see in, that there's nobody home, that they could see the wrappings nicely uh, piled there, folded, you know. <laughs> so... It, it's, it was weird the way they looked at it. They go, well, wait a minute. It's not unwrapped. It's still wrapped in there. So explain that one away. <laughs> you know. And so they come up and they're amazed. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So look, the very, the very first uh, witness has come and they're not expecting the resurrection. They're expecting him to be there. They're expecting to find a dead body. So they just don't get it at this point in time yet. As I said, they're not looking for a dead Messiah. I mean, they're amazed at a dead Messiah and they're disappointed. And they're not looking for a raised Messiah at this point. They don't understand what has happened yet. Um, and as we go through this uh, story in chapter 24, you'll see that it's in three three uh, locations, three different scenes, so to speak. The first one is at the tomb. The next one is on the road between Jerusalem and Emmaus. And then the third one is in the upper room. Remember where they had the uh, Last Supper in the upper room? So the third scene is there. And the structure of all three of these scenes is the same. The, the, they're there, the, some disciples are there, and they are rebuked. In the first story, they're rebuked by angels, and the second one by Jesus, and, and the third one by Jesus. So they're rebuked. So obviously there must be uh, something very important about being admonished or rebuked. When you're wrong, you know, it's important in Jesus' teaching to point that out and to convict his disciples of what the truth is. None of us like to be admonished, but we need to realize that it's a good thing. Right? It's a good thing. When you're involved in error or you need to learn something, uh, it's, it's a, a very important tool. And so the first thing that happens in all three of these things is admonishment or rebuke. Secondly, instruction. So they're corrected with instruction. And then uh, they understand it. And then fourthly, they become witnesses. All four scenes. And so we, we see it right here. In verse 4, the ladies are perplexed. What is going on? Who rolled the stone away? Where's the body? What is the deal with these wrappings? They're perplexed. And behold, two men, uh, we're told they're angels uh, later, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. So they shone with the glory of God as angels do. They've been in God's presence. And as the women were terrified, and so to see these angelic figures that, that appear as men, but they had the glory of God, uh, they're terrified, and they fell to the ground. And the men, uh, the two angels said, here's the rebuke, why do you seek the living one among the dead? So they admonished them said, Surely you knew that he was going to rise. Surely you knew he'd been teaching this for a year. 
Remember all those times I pointed that out? He kept telling them, now i got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, falsely accused, arrested, and then they're going to crucify me. But on the third day, I'll rise. And remember what the guy would write about himself that wrote, you know, like Matthew, whoever it was, they'd write, and we didn't understand. And now you can actually see that. They really didn't get it. They weren't expecting it. And so he says, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Uh, so a, a really mild, kind of a loving rebuke or admonishment. And here's the instruction. He is not here, but he has risen from the dead. And remember, look at this, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in the Galilee. So all the way up, when y'all were up there in the Galilee in that ministry, he was teaching you about what was going to happen and that he was going to be uh, resurrection, uh, resurrected. And also, this, this concept of remembering is, is a, a re often repeated concept in the New Testament. And why? Remember, remember, remember why? Because we've got bad memories. <laughs> Human beings are notoriously have bad memories, right? And so it's important to remember. And that's why we celebrate what we call the church ordinances, like a baptism and taking the Lord's Supper. What do you do when you regularly take the Lord's Supper? You remember. It's a remembrance of what Jesus did. When you eat that cracker, it's his body. When you uh, drink the little grape juice or something, you remember the, the blood of Christ, that our sins were paid for by the precious blood of Christ. And so uh, it's very important for us to remember. And we need to do whatever it takes for us to remember. That's another reason why it's so important to do Bible studies like this or your own personal ones or, or wherever you do it because we forget. We get distracted. What happens? You get out there in the real world where there's problems. You get unfocused. You forget the truth. And so we need to remember. And so they're told to remember, and now they get it. They remembered, uh, it says, in verse 8. So the angel says, The Son of Man told you that he had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and the third day rise again. And then verse 8 says, they remembered. Oh, that's, is, that's what he meant? <laughs> I get it now. And so they return from the tomb. They go back. we got to go back and tell the guys. And so they go back, all excited, and reported all these things to uh, the eleven. It's not 12 again yet because Judas has hung himself, so there's just 11 of them. Uh, and so verse 10, they become witnesses and tell them what they saw and what they heard. Now, the ones who were there and saw this and reported were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and also the other women with them who were telling these things to the apostles. What's the reaction? They're so firm, <laughs> they're so clueless that they, even though these friends of theirs tell them, they still don't get it. What are you talking about? These words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Now, to us men here, this seems impossible, that we wouldn't listen to the ladies I am shocked at these guys. But in those days, things were different. Not now, but in, but in those days. In fact, the, uh, in Israel, they had a law, a Jewish law, that women couldn't be witnesses at trials. Now things have flip-flopped, and now, you know, Everything's changed, and now the women have the credibility, and the men are goofy, right? But then things were different, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's great to take a note of this because God does unconventional things, doesn't he? Not at all what you would expect, to use the ladies as the first witnesses. You wouldn't expect him to do that. That 
audience then. Those men wouldn't expect that. And so they didn't accept that. And we're, we know uh, from the other accounts as well that Peter and John got up and ran to the tomb to see what in the world they were talking about. And they also saw that the tomb was empty and they saw the linen wrappings and they were perplexed. They couldn't figure out what was going on either. And so the, uh, that's the first scene there in, in the story in chapter 24. Now we switch to the second scene, which is out on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus is a uh, small village about seven miles to the west. And we're told that uh, two disciples, uh, one of them is going to be named uh, Clopas, but basically two guys that are not in the inner circle, but who have been also following Jesus, are walking. They'd been in Jerusalem for the Passover, and they'd witnessed all the events concerning Jesus, his arrest, crucifixion, the whole deal, his burial. And so they're walking back, and, and they're upset. They're perplexed. They're confused. Why? Because they had thought Jesus was the guy. Again, the, the, a dead Messiah just doesn't register with them. So they're not looking, and they don't understand and this is going to be unexpected with them as well. And so they're conversing on the road. What do you think happened? Why would, I was sure that this was the guy. What about all those miracles he did? What about all the prophecies that he fulfilled? This had to be the guy. But it wasn't. He's dead. He's gone, right? And so they're all confused, they're clueless, they don't know what's going on. And so as they're walking along, a third party, some guy walks up the road behind them and joins in, and they don't really pay much attention to him. When he asks them the question, you know, they, they probably kind of glance and really don't look at him too hard. Uh, point being, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. They don't recognize that it's him. Behold, two of them, verse 13, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all the things which had taken place. They're trying to figure it out. It's baffling. They're going back and forth. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. So he joins them and is walking along the road uh, with them. But verse 16 says, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Uh, exactly what this means, uh, we can't be sure. Uh, it, it means possibly uh, divine intervention in God's plan. He doesn't want them to uh, get it yet. There's still a lot to be taught and to be understood before he wants their eyes open to see that it's Jesus? Or the second thing is, the state of their heart. I mean, when you're not expecting to see someone, or you, when you see somebody that you know, but it's out of context, you don't recognize them. Maybe you usually uh, see somebody from a distance at like a gym or something, and they have their workout clothes and their hair tied up or whatever, and then you see them at church, and they've got, you know, all dressed up, and you don't recognize them, right? So, I mean, they just weren't really looking for him, not expecting him at all. Um, and then, of course, uh, it's possible that he had a hood over, he was somehow disguised, I don't know. Uh, but clearly, uh, it was God's intention, it was divine intention, that they not recognize him up to this point. And so he says to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. So I take it, obviously, Jesus being omniscient knows exactly their state of mind and what they're talking about. So why did he ask them that question? It's like a diagnostic question. You know, years ago, uh, an organization called Evangelism Explosion made some diagnostic questions uh, for their people that were using their method of sharing Christ. 
and they said, you know, the first thing you ask them is, if you were to die today and go to heaven, would God let you in? Or what would you have done that's good enough for God to let you in? And if your audience says, well, I did this, that, that, or the other, and I tried real hard, and I think I've done enough, then you know that they don't understand the grace of God. They don't understand the, the gospel, right? So you diagnose you know, their error through those questions. If they say, I'm, uh, I've never done anything, I couldn't do anything. Only Jesus could do it for me and he died on the cross as a vicarious sacrifice, then you know they do get it. They do understand the gospel. And so in the same way, Jesus is uh, diagnosing their situation, letting them e express their error by asking these questions. And so one of them named uh, Cleopas, and by the way, if you remember in the first chapter, you can go all the way back to the first lesson. I know your memory's good, and you remember when we talked about this. What's unique about Luke is, Luke, uh, uh, the trivia question, who's the only Gentile author of the Bible? Luke. Okay, so he wasn't an eyewitness. He got all his information, and he says this in chapter 1, he got all of his information from the eyewitnesses. And so you'll notice as he goes through all these stories, some of the guys he names and some of them he doesn't. And the church tradition is that the guys he names are the guys that he interviewed, the eyewitnesses that were there that told him the story and who are still alive. So Luke writing this is like saying, this is the guy that I interviewed who was there, who saw it, and by the way, he's still there. You can go talk to him, right? It's one thing to tell a story to, about somebody who's dead and you can't check the facts, but Luke is telling stories uh, that he got from eyewitnesses who are still alive. And so he, he names uh, one of them, Cleopas. And this guy answers and says, this is great, this is, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who is unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? What's great about that? They don't know anything. Jesus is the only one that is aware and they're saying, are you the only one that doesn't know? He's the only one that does know. Right. Yeah. And so he says to them, what things? Again, diagnostic questions. The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, Nazarene, who was a prophet, notice past tense, they're talking about him like he's dead, was a prophet, mighty indeed, and, and in word, and in the sight of God and all the people. Uh, th these are very nice things about Jesus that they say. Right? But it's not enough. You've got to believe in the risen Christ, that he's alive. And they need to find that out. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. So that's all they know at this point. But we were hoping, here's, here's their error, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. To them, it's a nationalistic thing. He's going to restore and redeem the nation to its past prominence and to uh, peace and prosperity. And indeed, besides all this, it is the third day. He kept talking about the third day. We thought that would be the day he'd set up the kingdom. So that's what they're looking for on the third day. But they say, nothing's happened. <laughs> but also some women, now this is where it gets real confusing to them, they, they know the story about the women who went to the tomb. They amazed us. And when they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels. Remember the two men, the angels, who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us, Peter and John, went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women had said, but they did not see him. So they saw him later, we know. So these, these guys apparently left Jerusalem before Jesus appeared to uh, Peter and John. And so that's their cluelessness. They've revealed they don't know anything. They don't understand. They're not looking for it. And so here's the rebuke. Jesus says to them, O foolish men 
and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Can you imagine being on the road and there's a stranger walking along asking you dumb questions and so you answer it and the guy just absolutely dresses you down? You fool! <laughs> what? Who is this guy calling me a fool? You're, you, you should have known is the point. It's in the scriptures, see? You should have known. If you'd have read them, you would have known, okay? And here's, here's what his point is in verse 26. Here's the instruction. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? In what sense is it necessary? He's saying he had to die as a vicarious sacrifice for your sin. What good is it to set up a kingdom of sinners? No, you've got to have redemption before the kingdom. So first Christ had to suffer and be raised, and then later the kingdom. But this had to happen first. It was absolutely necessary. And then beginning, continues the instruction, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And so he started going through all the uh, well-known Old Testament passages uh, about himself to point out to them uh, that he's in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament authors predicted him. Just a few, because uh, you're probably thinking, I wonder what those were. Well, Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that God would raise up a prophet from among the Jews that's just like Moses in the sense that he would speak the words of God, do miracles, but Moses said, but this guy will go further because based on his words, you will be judged. So you stand before God, it's the words of this guy, Jesus, that you'll be judged by. Okay, uh, Psalm 22, you have a description of the crucifixion. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. There, Psalm 22, verse 14 through 18. A lengthy description of the suffering that the crucifixion causes. Uh, Psalm 16, 10. Uh, God will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither will he allow his Holy One to undergo decay. So he predicted the resurrection, that his body would not decay. Psalm 41.9, the uh, Judas Iscariot betraying him, says, even my close friend in whom I entrusted my, myself ate my bread, he turned against me. Okay? Uh, Psalm 110, the deity of Christ, the Lord says to my Lord, God says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then, of course, Isaiah 53 uh, it talks about uh, the sins of the world being laid on Jesus. Uh, it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 7, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She'll, be, she'll name him God with us or call him that. Uh, and on and on and on. He'd be born in Bethlehem, tribe of Judah, uh, the family of David, and, you know, literally hundreds of these things that he could have been quoting uh, as he's teaching them. And they're just amazed, and everything's being opened up to them as he's teaching them. And so they approached uh, Emmaus, the village where they were going, in verse 28, and they, they can't get enough. I mean, they are learning so much, and their whole concept of reality is changing uh, just that fast as Jesus is teaching them. And so they beg him, they entreat him to come in and dine with him. Don't leave, don't go on, stay with us. And so they bring him in, they urged him, verse 29 says, and he went in to stay with them, and it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began to give it to them. And it says, verse 31, their eyes were opened. God opened their eyes and Jesus showed him, 
showed them his hands. Uh, to me, it's a very dramatic climax to the story because they haven't known who this guy is. They, they get an idea of something pretty special. He breaks the bread. Normally, the host would break the bread and pass it. Jesus breaks the bread and hands it to him. And when he does, what do you think they see? The nail holes, the marks of the crucifixion. Has anybody ever seen uh, someone who's been crucified that's alive? Anybody? I think it just happened one time. So their eyes are open. They get it now. They know that it's him. And so he vanishes from their sight. And they said one to another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So we felt something inside of us. The Word of God is alive. The Word of God works in your inner being, your soul, your spirit. When you study His Word, you can have light bulbs that go off in your mind. You can feel that it's a good thing and that it's right. And that's what they were experiencing uh, here. And they got so excited about it, even though it's gotten dark, what did they do? Verse 33, they ran back to Jerusalem to tell everybody about it. So that fourth part of it, they become witnesses. Same structure in each one of these scenes. They returned to Jerusalem and found the, the eleven gathered together. And they told the Emmaus disciples, the Lord is really risen, so by this time they've seen him too. And, and Simon, he's appeared to Simon Peter, and they began to relate their experiences on the road. So now they go, oh yeah, what about us? And they told their story. And so while they're sitting there conversing and telling these stories back and forth, uh, we have the, the final scene in the upper room. And while they were all telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. Miraculously. I take it being fearful of, of being arrested themselves. They've got the door locked. He didn't come in through the door. He's just there with them. You know, a miraculous event. Uh, and so they're blown away. They, he gets their attention right off. They were startled. They were frightened. And it's like, can this be real? Are we seeing a ghost or a spirit? And so he naturally says, touch me. Feel that I, I am real, that it's, it's me, it's my body. And so you, you may have wondered, how do we know it's a bodily resurrection? Well, Jesus goes to great lengths to make sure that they know that it's a bodily resurrection. He lets them touch him. He puts his hands, they, in, puts their hands in his nail holes. Uh, he not only talks to them, he eats with them. A bodily resurrection. So we also can expect the same thing. So he says, see my hands and my feet that it is me, it's myself. Touch me and see, for just a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you have seen that I have. And so they touched him and they felt and they were amazed. And it was just an unbelievable situation there in verse 40, 41. And he says, have you anything to eat? So he sits down and eats with them. So the risen Christ reinterprets reality for them, reinterprets the scriptures for them, changes their mind about everything. Where were they? Hope lost. Where are they now? Hope regained. Now they're pumped up, excited, fired up. And it just shows you how important the resurrection is. Because without the resurrection, it's hopeless. With the resurrection, they're new people. they got everything to look forward to. Everything's great. Resurrection, all important. Okay? So... Um, what I'd like to do is close with uh, a few principles from this story. Number one, there is a broad chasm between <laughs> what people come up with and what people think versus what really happens. 
right? This is God's plan. People didn't come up with this. People didn't figure this out. This is all about what God had planned and is unique. And no one would have ever thought of it themselves. Secondly, we are spiritually blind until the word of God ministers to our minds and our spirit. So until God reaches out to us and we get the truth from him, we don't know come here from Sikkim when it comes to spiritual reality. Thirdly, Jesus is much more than a prophet and mighty indeed, like they said. He's more than that. You've got to believe more than that. He's got to be more than that to you. Fourth, God's delights in doing things contrary to the way mankind traditionally likes to do them. So he, he appears to the women first. They're his witnesses initially. Uh, totally different than we would have done it. And the concept of remembering is emphasized. Uh, so we need to be in Bible study constantly. We need to do the memorials. Uh, we need to take communion, all these things, to be constantly remembering. And as I said, their sadness revealed that without the resurrection, Jesus' ministry was a failure. But they have, and we have, responsibility. We are held responsible. Each one of these groups was held responsible. They were admonished and rebuked. Why? Because they weren't with the truth. They didn't have it. They hadn't read it. They hadn't understood. But you're held responsible. Okay? Uh, and then the last thing I want to talk about is this. Uh, if we also have been promised the resurrection, and we have, uh, Philippians 3.21 says... Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So this is what Christ is going to do. This is our promise that as he has been raised, we will also, but our body will be that spiritual body, even though it's a real physical body, it will be that resurrected spiritual body that he had as well. 1 John 3, 2 says, we are not yet what we shall be, but when Jesus comes back, when he appears, we shall be like him. So we're going to be just like him in eternity. And people have asked me, uh, somebody asked me last week, they said, well, what are we going to look like? Are we going to know each other? Will we have the same identities? And my answer is this, what are we going to look like? You're going to look like yourself, except good. <laughs> And my point there is, right now, I mean, we've all aged, you know, even the best of us is still aged, the youngest of us is aging, you know, and so we have our wrinkles and we have our scars and what have you, but then, you know, that'll all be over, you, you'll have a perfect body, we'll all look good, no more scars or wrinkles. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the identity question, we are going to know, we're all going to know, even as we are known. So we're going to know everything, everybody, and we're also going to be known. If you remember in the Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were themselves. They weren't faceless, nameless drones or whatever. They were identified as you know, Moses and Elijah, and so will we be as well. Um, in First Thessalonians, people are worried about their dead relatives, and they said, don't be concerned about your loved ones who have fallen asleep. They will be raised with you as well, and you will know them then. Uh, you have the parable that we looked at last spring, the rich man and Lazarus, remember? In Luke 18, they knew each other, and they had the same name, and I could go all the way down. Uh, yes, we'll have our same identity. We will know each other. Uh, another thing, you know, somebody said, well, uh, will we still be married? Well, Jesus had said, well, you don't procreate, so it will be a different relationship, but it'll still be that loving, intimate relationship that, that you had on earth, except now you really will know each other. Right now you don't know each other. You don't know yourself. Because this is not the real you. You won't be the real you until then. 
Right now, you're tainted by sin, by selfishness. But then there will be no corruption. There will be no sin. So you'll be perfect as God originally intended you to be. That's the first time you'll really know each other. Right now, we're not perfectly uh, transparent, even to our spouses. We don't know what each other is thinking, right? But then we'll be completely transparent and we'll actually fully know each other. It'll be awesome, right? So uh, somebody else asked, well, what about the scars and holes that Jesus had? You know, will we have all our scars and holes? And I would say no. I think he had those to show them convincingly that it was him, right? So I think he, that's why he was scarred. Um, so, you know, maybe you're like me or one of the guys in the story and you grew up in the church and you were clueless and you didn't know what was going on and now in studying the Bible, you get it like they did. Uh, it, as you studied the Bible, it's changed your heart. It, you, you can have the light bulb come on in your mind and you, and you know the truth. And if that's the case, I, I invite you today to Turn your life over to Jesus because you now know the truth. You now believe the full story. You now just don't believe Jesus was a really good guy and a wonderful teacher and a religious leader. Now you know who he is. The Savior who died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven, but he is alive. He raised God, raised him from the dead, vindicated the truth that our sins are atoned for. And now that you believe that, I invite you to pray with me today. And maybe in the quiet of your heart, you repeat the prayer if you haven't ever done this before. Um, just pray along with me. Jesus, uh, I am not perfect. I need a Savior to atone for my sins. Please come into my life. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Please take control of my life and make me the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.